I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzola here with Sam. Me. Sam Monson's back. I'm back. What's five up, shows, Five shows away, but you're back here. Five. You made it. How did you survive? <laughs> Easily. Oh, yeah? It was great. It was a little That's stressful right. at one point trying to find, find guests. You know, sufficient guests. You can't just grab anybody. Well, you had, like, you know, Rick Spielman. It's a good start. Rick nice. Spielman. Nice. Hey, Greg uh, Rosenthal. Yeah. And now, then Greg, you- by the way... Comes on right away. I know you didn't listen to any, any of our I shows. didn't have time to listen to anything. I don't the, blame you. The E-type was not conducive to listening to things. Sure. Greg rolls in and almost within, within two minutes was like questioning my uh, hosting. He was giving me tips. Yeah. He's like, oh, you don't, you don't push back on Sam enough is what he said. I don't push back on your crazy takes, <laughs> according to Greg. Which specific crazy takes? I think whatever you bring to the table for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was Greg's. I mean, he listens, obviously. He listens to the show. So Greg gave us feedback. We went. Well, I'm glad know. somebody finally pushed back against your hostings. You yeah. Know. So I'm going to try, try harder. Okay. Per uh, Greg's suggestion. We've got, uh, we had Trevor Sykema talking all things yeah. positive. Still, and, then you, and then you just went Renner. And then I got Renner for, you know, some drafts discussion, some, some good discussion. And then because the model was starting to come into focus, <laughs> I needed Renner for the model show. I was, I was this close to doing monologue. <laughs> Steve breaks down the Excel model discussion, but I needed somebody to kind of bounce ideas off. So I probably still talked like 90% of the show, but I had Renner for the 10%. A two-hour monologue of just the model would have been pretty funny. Here I am using a VLOOKUP. Pretty funny, couched with the caveat that I wouldn't have listened to it. I don't blame you. I would have found it very funny if that had been out in the real world. So, yeah, we survived without you. Okay. I'll leave you at some point this summer. Because I'll have another vacation coming up. So t- t- how, was the, uh, how was the trip? You raised some money for charity and the whole deal? Raised a lot of money. We were up to $13,000 or Fantastic. something. Fantastic. Um, let me get the exact number right now. Yeah, we, we made it, which is the first point. You know, you drive a 62 E-Type, it's $13,258 right, right now. We had to raise the goal. It was 10000 before. Um, so, yeah, if you go to drivemenshealthforward.com, you can still donate for uh, cancer research. The E-Type made it. 62 E-Type Jag. Now, look, America has some beautiful landscapes, some amazing places. Don't we stayed, be trash in my country now. Not, we've stayed in some pretty incredible places. I would recommend anybody just get out, see things, right? There's some insane places we stayed. Monument Valley, Zion uh, National Park, um, Cadillac Ranch, which is in the middle of nowhere next to Amarillo. Pretty cool place. Um, all kinds of places. Go out and see them. Now, I'm not sure I would entirely recommend doing it in a 62 e-type jag right um because you know bits were falling off the thing 
by the end of it. Like it, it was it was hanging in there. We lost a screw that held on like the hood. And we had to replace that because one side of the hood was like rattling itself to pieces. Um, needed bolts tightening on the engine pretty consistently to stop it leaking oil. Uh, by the, the no it's AC. Beautiful pictures here. Yeah. Good. No AC, which is probably the biggest point, right? And you think that's bad going through the desert, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada, Death Valley, all that kind of stuff. No. The no AC thing becomes a real problem once you hit the eastern side of the country. The and humidity. it's like, yeah, it's like 97 and humid. And you're How just, did you survive? you just sweating the whole time? Oh, it sucked. The last couple of days in the car. Who did most of the driving? We split. Yeah. So you it started. split days? No. We, so any, like within a day? On the days, the, the journeys were sort of between 200 and 450 miles, right? Yeah. So a 200-mile trip, pretty easy. You can get that done, you know, even in an E-type, relatively simply. The bigger days, though, you broke them up into whatever, and it would be like he'd drive for a couple hours, I'd drive for a couple hours, done. Um, but, yeah, the no AC thing was tough. Now, technically, the car had AC. It was just useless. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to do this kind of trip, I would recommend a more modern car. The yeah. day won't die, will, you know, won't rattle itself to pieces, and B, has air conditioning. But given that, but, highly recommend But once yeah. you have one of those, yeah. go see the country. That's cool. That's great. I'm glad you guys... This thing, by the way, is still on my... Bonding time and everything, too? Yeah. There's a, my pinned tweet is the sort of announcement tweet, and then there's a thread that sort of shows you all kinds of pictures that I took along the way, uh, as well as you know, the link and all that kind of stuff. Very cool. E-Type, by the way, is gorgeous car. You know, not necessarily designed for this kind of thing, but beautiful. But beautiful car. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you guys made it, raised some money for charity, and had some fun, I'm sure. Mm. And now you're back. Also, back a lot football. of people pointing out that my dad, at almost 70, has a full head of hair that isn't yes. gray. Yeah. Which just feels, I mean, it's, it's unfair, frankly. Yeah. A lot of people pointed that out. I'm, I'm aware of it. I just want to say that. He stole, I know. Didn't pass on the good genes, huh? No. Not only that, but, like, it's not even, like, because some people have said it comes from, like, your mother's male side of the family, you know? But Sounds right, yeah. literally every male member on either side of my family, every male blood relative has a full head of hair. Just, you. just me. That doesn't. Has a hat. Yeah. Has a hat. Has a hat. There you go. See? Look. look Bald-ass Sam, full head of hair. You guys might be the same age. Yeah. Now, look, his, his beard, at least, has gone fully gray, yeah, so I've got true. that going for yeah, me. But you. Full head of hair that isn't gray feels a little bit unfair. Good time, though, overall. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it was good fun. Reminder that the best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their best ball mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money. And the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season and the highest score at the end of the year win. The champion of best ball mania last year drafted right here in June, so there's no time like the present. To join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit. That's right, double up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF. Draft your best ball mania team today. All right, what are we talking about today? We've got to talk some football mm. at some point here today. Last year, we did do a show on the biggest leaps and drops 
in the NFL kind of predicting. We've got some mailbag. Do you want to start with mailbag stuff? Or do you want to go? No, we'll start with the biggest leaps. Or do you want to hit any of the news that happened? All right, let's touch on some of the I don't know what the last thing that happened was that you've talked about. I think we didn't touch on <laughs> actual news. The news At being all. like Aaron Donald broke the defensive contract structure. Yeah. Um, they just gave more money just for being Aaron Donald. Yeah. Well, because he was threatening to retire. Sure. He yeah. said, I, I might but retire. They didn't, it, I, is that an unprecedented contract that they just gave him a raise? There were no like additional years, which is usually how that works. Yeah. The, they just they gave just him some, more money. Some void years in there? I don't. Did they even do that? I think they just, they just gave him more money. Here, Aaron Donald, here's your two years. You're awesome. You're now just getting more money for your two years. Yeah, that's how you do it. So the Rams paid Aaron Donald a lot of money. Um, I mean, news in June is like, Tyreek Hill said two is more accurate than Patrick Mahomes. That constitutes news here in June. Uh, Mac Jones has a fresh deep ball. I think that would probably constitute news in any period of the year, just because it's crazy, you know? More accurate, though? He specifically said more accurate. He didn't say Tua is better than Patrick Mahomes. He didn't say any of that stuff. He didn't say Tua has a better arm than Patrick Mahomes. Good, good. He just said more accurate. He's more accurate. Okay. And if you went throw for throw, depending on how deep down the field you're talking, it's not like <laughs> that yeah. crazy. Hmm. I just think Tyreek Hill's at a tough spot trying to talk up Tua when you've come from Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. You're going to have to say some stuff, and it's not going to look great. I'm buying it, though. I'm ready oh, yeah? to his breakout. Okay. Buying the breakout this year. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Aaron. Like, we've talked a lot about Aaron Donald and the whole thing, but um, just how good is he? You know, people, I think, are – I don't want to say people are catching on, but we've seen just how good Aaron Donald is, that people are – and I don't know if it's just because he start, you know, they won a Super Bowl – when, you, when people are putting together their top five all-time list and of defensive players and all that stuff, like Aaron Donald's getting mentioned now. Like people are going through these exercises Good. and putting him with Lawrence Taylor and putting him with uh, Deion Sanders and Reggie White and Bruce Smith and all that stuff. Just how good is Aaron Donald? Yeah, it, the problem with the, these types of conversations is that, you know, we don't have the kind of PFF data on Lawrence Taylor and Reggie White and Mean Joe Green and all those kind of guys, and it's very difficult to just – we know the limitations of like sack numbers and tackles, yeah. you know, and all the, the the kind of data that does exist for those guys. And it's very difficult without the advanced data and the kind of stuff that we have to fill in the blanks to figure out if they really were as dominant as those stats make him look. Um, but when you when you have them for Donald and you start looking and every time you kind of peel back one layer of the onion it's the same story. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, what, what layer of context or nuance you add to it, Donald remains absurd. And we had this conversation years ago when J.J. Watt was doing his thing and he was at the peak of his powers and Donald wasn't yet in the, in the league or wasn't yet the best player in the league. Um, and it's like every, every data point you put J.J. Watt in, he exists in his own little anomalous, you know, outlier. Doesn't not in the same plane as everybody else. He's just different. That is where Aaron Donald is, just all the time. And it doesn't matter what context or what additional piece of well, have you thought about this? What happens if you look? It's the same. So you know when you think about double teams and all that kind of stuff. Like Donald has been in the league now. There's a lot of players that dominate for a year or two and then disappear, right? Because the league understands how to adjust to things, and that's the the next big sort of 
test of greatness is how long can you do it for because eventually the league figures out what you do well and is prepared to stop it even if it means sacrificing other things and that's why a lot of the times quarterbacks you know they can be amazing for a year or two and then the league has a plan and it may you know they can still be successful but they might not be as scintillating as they were at the start because the rest of the NFL is taking that thing away and forcing you to do something else. And even if it means, you know, the next guy is going to dominate because you open up that space, they're not going to lose against plan B or against plan A, rather. Donald has been winning with plan A since day one, and there's nothing the NFL can do to take it away. Plan A works every single game. And the only way plan A isn't going to work is if you literally make it impossible get the ball out of the quarterback's hands in two seconds every single play, you know, run the hell away from him, like everything to make sure the plan A cannot function. That's the only way you can take Aaron Donald away, which obviously has knock-on effects to the offense. Like you can only, you can only do so much when the ball has to come out of your hands in 1.8 seconds every single play. That all sounds good and all, but um, they do. I mean, teams do put extra bodies on Aaron Donald, and they do try to get rid of the ball, and he still grades extremely well yeah great and the value that he's bringing to the table uh number one in pff war among interior defensive linemen each of the last five years uh i believe he's been top graded every year since 2015 right as far as di goes yes was there a year that anybody surpassed him no, since his rookie season not the interior defense from player. a value standpoint though again we've used war a lot as far as um trying to explain player value trying to cross compare positions the thing with donald last year Set a re- I mean, he set a record for war, which is both, you know, it's a little bit cumulative. It's more, you know, opportunity driven, getting out on the field and then playing at a high level. Um, he was worth o- over 1.15 wins, which might not mean anything to anyone else. But we're talking most interior defensive linemen are worth less than a win per year. I mean, and most of them are closer to zero wins. It's like 0. 0.15. It's, it's, it's extremely low. So Aaron Donald is breaking the scale as far as adding wins to the table and he's been so good he's been so good that you can't like you know you've you've heard people through the years like we debated edge rush versus interior pass rush what's more valuable like you can't be like well look at what Aaron Donald does that's more valuable you you, you can't compare to what he's doing because he's such an extreme outlier at his position he's so good of course he's more valuable it's it, he is not changing the value of interior pass rushers he's just so good he just happens to be the most valuable defensive player by far Yeah. Um, at, at positions where war is, uh, war is more likely to push you toward corners or safeties or you know, coverage first players. But because Donald dominates so much, you can make the argument that he is the most valuable defensive player. And that's before even factoring in the force multiplier aspect of it and double teams and what he opens up for other people. The, the pass rush is just crazy. When you consider the idea that edge rushers get more pressure than interior defensive linemen, right? In a way, it sounds counterintuitive because defensive linemen have the shortest path to the quarterback, right? The guy lined up in the B gap doesn't have that far to travel to get to the quarterback, but he has to travel through more bodies typically, right? It's, It's a tighter space. There's less room to work in and the quarterback generally sees it coming, right? Because you're so close and right in front of him, you don't tend to operate in his blind side an awful lot. Edge rushers, A, they have a ton of space to work with because they're usually one-on-one with a tackle. And if you're going on the outside route in particular, you've got all the space in the world to work with, right? So if you can beat that guy athletically, you can get around him. B, 
again, if you're if you're on the other side of the field, the quarterback's working. The entire thing is happening essentially in his blind side. He never has any idea if you're coming or not. So you get pressure that doesn't happen from an interior point of view. So edge rushers get a significant portion more pressure than interior players. Donald leads the league in pressures basically every year. Yep. And over any period of time, last year, last two years, last five years, whatever you want to do, pick, pick your time period, Donald leads the NFL in pressures. And by a pretty significant margin. Um, and part of that is because guys like Von Miller have missed a year in there, you know, and that'll help. But that in itself is notable, right? Donald hasn't missed a year. The dude is built like the Hulk. Right. He has the durability, too. Right. He plays all, like, all the snaps. Basically. Despite being, you know, the concern on him coming out undersized. Right. Well, Aaron yeah. Donald is only 285 pounds. That can't work. The dude has been Iron Man. He's built like the Hulk. He doesn't miss time. And he leads the league in pressure every single year, pretty much, or any period of time. That's not supposed to happen. That is weird. The fact that he almost broke the sack record in a single season as an interior player shouldn't be possible. That's not supposed to happen. The rest of those guys that have that, you know, that threaten that record, they're all edge rushers. They all have that, you know, period where just, oh, a bunch of sacks went your way and you were able to take advantage of that space on the edge and you got that run. Donald doing this stuff as an interior guy almost exclusively, it, it cannot be overstated how ridiculous that is. Nobody else has come close. Special, special player. Last year, most valuable defensive players. Aaron Donald, then um, he was at 1.16 wins above replacement. 1.16. The next closest was Max Crosby at 0.81. Max Crosby, Jalen Ramsey, also of the Rams, Micah Parsons. I mean, again, oh. Awesome players. Max Crosby with a with a huge breakout season. He led the league in pressures, right? Crosby mm, last yeah, year at a hundred. Um, <clears throat> Ramsey always, you know, a very good corner. And then Parsons, who had that incredible rookie season as a pass rusher and you know hybrid edge linebacker, and, and Donald dwarfed all of them. Um, he's special enough that you need to go back and say when Ed Oliver came out or when Maurice Hurst came out, these guys that were playing at two eighty five. You can't be like, well, Aaron Donald does it, right? Because Donald is so good at everything. He's so good with, um, with technique, with his, with his hand position, with his power. Um, a lot of times I know NFL players, you, you know, like when you hear them talk, this happened a couple of years ago, like when you hear a quarterback talk and he's talking about like what he's seeing before a play and the media kind of goes nuts when they hear it. Oh my gosh, that's, this guy's so smart. Like, well, most NFL players, like that's, that's their language, right? That's how they talk. But you hear Donald talk about, how he approaches things and how he approaches watching guards and centers and studying the film, right? So he's not just an athletic freak. He is a technical, you know, he's just, he's a machine, right? Technically, uh, with power, with speed, with burst. And then he's over there studying how the center is going to double team. He knows when he's going to have a one-on-one. And I've never seen anybody, when he's one-on-one, he's pretty much going to win. Right, like Not when yet. you leave him one on one, he's going to win every time. That's what that's what really separates Donald. It's it's kind of like the Tyree Kill thing, right? Like when you leave Tyree Kill one on one, he's going to run by you. Yeah. Donald has that same ability to win when you do whatever the protection's not set properly or whatever it might be. Yeah, the so athletically is only part of it, right? Like athletically, there's no difference essentially between Ed Oliver and Aaron Donald in terms of what they're capable of doing physically, moving around speed, quickness, all those kinds of things. But obviously Ed Oliver isn't a fraction of the player that 
Aaron Donald is because Donald is technically way better. Hands, in particular, the ability to defeat blocks, that idea of him training with knives, all that kind of craziness, like that lets him beat guys immediately. Uh, Ed Oliver doesn't have that. And then the other part that you mentioned there was there was some video clip where he was talking. Was it on, on the – was it on I Am Athlete? Was that the podcast? Yeah, I think on? that's what where the clip came from. Where he was talking about the tape, the way he watches tape and how he uses it to essentially figure out like when he's actually going to have an opportunity to win. Because this, this is the thing, right? Even, even pass rushes like Aaron Donald, you're going to get maybe a great game. You're going to get 10 pressures in the game, right? If they're passing 50 times – you're getting a pressure one every five dropbacks. So you're really picking and choosing like the plays you're actually going to have any chance of making a play. So And, and in, in Donald's case, that that goes through the roof because half the time you're double teamed. You know, they're doing strange things to try and take you out of the game that don't happen for other people. So Donald's tape watching is not like, hey, you know, how does this guard play because i got to figure out how I can beat him. Donald is like, I'm going to beat whoever the hell is one-on-one in front of me Every single time. I don't even need to think about that. What I need to watch tape to figure out is, can I work out when I'm going to get a one-on-one opportunity and know where it's going to come so that I can attack the right gap at the right time and be through immediately? So Donald's tape study, and this is, I think, common through basically all great players, is they are all freakishly good at watching tape and understanding what's coming before it happens. Richard Sherman was always great at this, right? There were all these plays where Richard Sherman is essentially baiting somebody and running the route because he knows what's coming. Um, Luke Keekley, we talked about instincts. It wasn't instincts. The dude watched tape and understood what was happening and knew what was coming before it was coming. Like those FBI guys. Said, football intelligence. Yeah. FBI. Like, it really is. And Donald is, you know, an athletic freak, but also has this incredible understanding of what is happening and when. So that when he does get singled up randomly against a guy who has no shot of stopping him one-on-one, he knows it's coming. And he can attack that guy without that hesitation of, oh, look, I'm one-on-one now. What? Any reservations? Now they're going to pay him over $31 million per year. We're, we're, now, we're talking about quarterbacks up in the $40 million range, but there's still quarterbacks obviously making $30 million. I mean, it's, it's like a low-end quarterback money. And it's the money that high-end receivers are starting to get. Are we starting to get a feel for elite play? Like, is the market actually correcting in the right direction, say? That, yeah, quarter, quarterbacks should get most of the money, but elite receivers are probably worth in the $30 million range based on what we've seen. And when you have an elite Hall of Fame caliber player in his prime, still in his prime, like Aaron Donald, you pay him the $31 million and it's like, whatever, that's fine. I It'll mean, be worth it. look, the Rams are testing this, like, stars and scrubs approach to the absolute limit at this point. They, they have these, you know, five guys that account for all of, the, all of the production, all of the star power on that roster. They're doubling down on it by giving them all new monster market-setting contracts, Cooper Cup as well. I, I like it's worked so far. I don't know if the, I mean this can only make it more difficult to sustain. But ultimately, the the player in the NFL that should earn the most money outside of quarterbacks is Aaron Donald. So if Aaron Donald gets that contract, fine. I I, I mean obviously at some point that becomes a problem in terms of assembling fifty three guys. Like when you have Matthew Stafford and Jalen Ramsey and Cooper Cup and. Aaron Donald, and they're all earning top end of the market money at some stage. 
that's an issue. But they're the right guys. Like, those are the guys that should be getting paid that kind of money. The PFF NFL podcast is brought to you by Cash App. Cash App's the easiest way to send, spend, and save your money. You can send or request money from your friends when they owe you for dinner, drinks, literally anything. Maybe uh, in-season bets. Brandon Graham sack totals, whatever it might be. Mm. Besides just sending money back and forth with Cash App, you can invest in stocks with as little as $1 as well as buy, sell, and send Bitcoin instantly. Cash App also lets you design your own debit card completely free to spend money anywhere you'd like. Cash App will laser print it and mail it to you all for free. The card comes with free discounts at your favorite places called Boosts. So sign up for Cash App today using referral code TOUCHDOWN, which gives new users $15. It's promo code TOUCHDOWN for $15 free dollars over at cash app all right so the other news was again tyreek said guys were uh two was accurate uh timo our friend timo said that uh he i don't want to put words into his mouth he kind of compared hunter renfro to cooper cup yeah hunter renfro, to, renfro just got but he said hot take and, and then that thing just took off so that's what happens in june that was like when trash said that tyreek kills the best deep threat Two years ago, and we were like, listen, 12-year-old Randy Moss still exists. Yeah. You know? Quotes. Uh, June's also when you... Uh, you don't want to... You don't Tom need Brady to... Thing. Yeah. You, you don't need to put words in Timo's mouth. We can pull up the tweet. Hot take. The Raiders paid like 60% of what the Rams paid to the same player. I.e. Hunter Renfro is Cooper Cup. Uh, to be fair, he then threaded some replies... Uh, they have similar usage in route tree. Cup runs more routes that are McVeigh staples, deep crosses, etc., because he plays with McVeigh. Cup is also the most famous proponent of being uh, more quick than fast, which is exactly the scouting report for Renfro. Is Cup better? Maybe. And then he says, do I believe that 100%? Lol, no. Uh, but it's fun to think about these things and think what, might, what we might be sure about, but what might be wrong. I, I think reading behind the scenes over here, reading into it, I think he's basically saying if you gave Hunter Renfro Cooper Cup volume, he could put up similar numbers. Well, he's basically saying if you transplanted Hunter Renfro into Cooper Cup's role and removed Cooper Cup from the Rams, it would be the same. And I think that's madness. Yeah, I think I, I would disagree there. But I, I think there's a kernel of truth in that it would get you closer than you probably think. Yeah, of course. But I mean, that, that, the one knock on Cup when you're looking at last year and saying this is an all-time season – is it, it is easier to win from the slot. Like, it is yeah, yeah. easier to put up volume from the slot. And I think through that lens, if Timo's saying, well, you know, if you give Renfro higher volume from the slot with the Rams. Now, Timo didn't want to say, like, with Matthew Stafford because he's also not a great – he's not a big Stafford guy. Uh-huh. But that was that – was, that's part of what made Cup special, though. Cup and Stafford had special chemistry. And there is something to that. That's, you know, Brady to Gronk and, you know, Rodgers to Devontae Adams. There is something about chemistry and quarterback and receivers working together because Stafford and Cup had it. Uh, Cup also, he's a little bigger. He's, he's definitely bigger and more physical and can mm-hmm. win on the outside a bit more. And the other thing about Cup, when you say quicker than fast, yeah, he ran like a four six four or whatever it was at the combine, but we all know that the Rams were using more like on-field game speed type of metrics that are available and Cup's a lot faster than that so he's not like a yeah he's not just a big slow slot cup does have some speed to his game as well he does and that's the thing like so even when you go back to his college tape like he was running away from the pac 12 like he eviscerated oregon when they played uh when eastern washington played oregon one game put up like 240 yards which is the game that i graded and 
sold me immediately on Cooper Cup. Now, every time he then worked out, it's like, ah, four, six, come on. Yeah, it, you know, it was but annoying. He then got open at the Senior Bowl, right? Right, exactly. So, and you, you know, you watched him at the Combine as well. You watch guys sometimes and they just move differently and look better than everybody else. And there's something to that. And so he did look incredible. But that was the game where you watch and he's catching a pass and then just outrunning a Pac-12 defense. Like, these are legitimate athletes he's running away from. Uh, if he runs a 4-6, it doesn't show up in the pads. Hunter Renfro doesn't have that. Like, they might have similar comparable 40 times, comparable even the NGS stuff that sort of shows actual play speed. But it manifests differently. Like, it manifests itself in a completely different way. When Cooper Cup catches a ball, he can outrun a defense and go the distance. Hunter Renfro can't. Like, that's not a, a skill set that he possesses. They've also both been given some leeway to kind of create their own routes, right? To kind of run instead of just like an in and out. It's like an in and out and in and out. Yeah. You know, you, whatever, you know, you, they're, they're adding layers to the route running in, in part because they do have a good feel for where defenders are and how to get open. And they've both kind of been given a little bit of that leeway by their respective teams. Yeah. Another couple of elements. One, Cooper Cup's a much better blocker. Then Hunter Renfro is a bigger guy. Two, as much as, oh, yeah, Cooper Cup's had a ton of production in the slot, the dude also wrecked press coverage. Like, he can play outside and win one-on-one against elite number one press co- corners. Again, not 100% sure Hunter Renfro does that on a consistent basis. Two, the grading doesn't back that up, right? Cooper Cup had a 94 grade last year. Hunter Renfro... Yeah, it's one of the best seasons we've ever Hunter seen. Hunter Renfro was 71.7, like... The data, you know, the, the actual grading doesn't now. Timo's argument, again, this is actually putting words in his mouth, but Timo's argument presumably would be, yeah, but Matthew Stafford, the environment, the Rams, blah, blah, blah. You swap over, that's going to equalize those grades a bit. Again, I would say, yeah, probably to some extent, it's not closing extreme. a 20-point gap. Here's, here's the other thing, too. NFL teams knew that Cooper Cup was the go-to guy by the end of the season. Yeah. So whether it was Stafford to Cup against the Bucks. I mean, particularly, you know, Robert Woods gets injured. It is Cooper Cup. Okay, OBJ shows up and starts making some plays, but for most of the season, it was unquestionably Cooper Cup. We're talking week 17, Cooper Cup with clutch touch, uh, or week 18, clutch touchdowns from Cooper Cup, even though they, I think they lost that game. Yeah, in the divisional playoff against the Bucks, the all-out blitz where Cup gets behind the defense. Uh, in the conference championship game against the 49ers, Cup's a big part of that whole game. And then in the Super Bowl, right? Anytime you needed a third down conversion, game-winning touchdown, and the whole deal, it's all Cooper Cup with Matthew Stafford. So I would take Cup. Mm. And uh, that's why that's why Timo said hot take. Yeah, it is a hot take, and I believe it's an incorrect hot take. Perfect. So let's go to... Um, By the way, this is also one of those things that, like, you know, it's like, oh, look at the next crazy thing PFF is saying now. You know, PFF is not, it's not one voice. Oh, that also happened while you were gone. Connor McQuiston was all over uh, Good Morning Football for his coach rankings. Now, his, uh, he did not have Mike Tomlin or Sean McVay in the top 10. Okay. Your thoughts? Uh, again, I would disagree. I would disagree, too. Stop saying PFF says everything. Now, they had Connor on to, to defend himself the next day after they trashed him, apparently. <laughs> um, I do this all the time when I'm on, like, Pittsburgh radio. They're like, the social media account said this. I'm like, I, I don't account for what they say. Right. What do you want me to do about I'm going to separate myself. Okay. Najee Harris was not a top 10 running back. I'm not 
That's someone else's voice. It's not mine. It used to be mine. It used to be. Once upon a time. If, my, if I'm at the byline, if, if it's my byline, you can talk to me. It's not. Yeah. I mean, once upon a time, we ran the Twitter account. We did. Then you could blame me for what came out then. That's not anymore. Right. Not anymore. Not mine. Blame Gordon. Yeah. Go get him. Come after Gordon. He's a man. He's not 40 yet, though. No. Um, but Mike Tomlin and you Sean McVay not in the top 10 for coaches. I would disagree with both. I think um, – so Connor did go through his um, process. I heard a little bit about it. Um, I didn't get to read the whole thing. Um, I do think the analytics community as a whole, not saying Connor or people at PFF, the analytics community as a whole when evaluating coaches, I think sometimes struggle to only see what you can quantify. Well, yeah. Which is like fourth down decisions. And then you only – because that's like the hot button issue. I mean, look, there are other people in the analytics community who are just like, please – Stop talking about fourth down decisions. Like, that's, it's old news. The league's already adjusted. And it's, it's literally a fraction of what a coach has to actually do. A fraction. A small fraction of what a coach actually has to do in a given week. So I think the analytics community or analytics Twitter or whatever you want to call it sometimes overrates the thing that you can see, oh, there's a which whole is not world. always the thing that is most valuable. There's a whole world of stuff that goes on that you have no privy to that – is really important. And Mike Tomlin is probably the best example of this. Like, Mike Tomlin runs an organization that doesn't necessarily lean on a lot of this analytics stuff and a lot of the – they do a lot of things wrong in Pittsburgh and yet almost always overcome it all to be a successful team and not have a losing season and generally are some form of kind of contender, you know, quote, unquote. That happens because Mike Tomlin. Right, because that dude runs an organization that everybody buys into and believes in, and play better because of it. And this happened um, going into the Champions League final. I think somebody was asking Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool coach, one of the best football soccer coaches in the in the world, and they were like, uh, "Oh, your teams are now going on, you know, three finals and haven't scored." Or they were sort of saying, "This bad thing has happened three or four times in a row now. How do you?" How do you get your team up and sort of say, don't worry about this, guys. This won't happen this time. He was like, well, like, well, that's a ridiculous way of framing it. Why would I put that in their heads in the first place? Like, that will immediately start them thinking about the bad thing. We don't want them to happen. Like, I don't we, – we don't concentrate on that at all. We focus on the good thing we want to happen, and that's the like, – we manifest this stuff by – thought he's like that's just basic psychology he's like this might not be useful for your job as a journalist but like maybe at home you know think about that take it away and roll that away like that's how these guys are working they are changing the thought process and therefore the outcomes of the players they're dealing with in a way that you don't even see most of the time that's what I, i think like when belichick does a press conference i don't think he's always being a jerk i there's probably some times where he's being a jerk but when he says we're on to the next week, we're on to the next week, we forgot about the whole thing, we're moving on. Like when he does that, I think that's legitimately his mindset. Well, this because is it why it really does not help him. It, like you said, it helps journalists yeah. to look back and tell a story and all that stuff. It does not help the football coach to yeah. think about, oh, I made this bad decision, other than like you learn from it, you move on. So that's how football coaches, that's how coaches think. Well, this what is, is why, the best thing for my team moving forward? This is why you simply can't take like what these people say at face value and, and believe that they're simply answering the question you gave and telling the truth. Because they're not, right? Just like Jurgen Klopp, these guys are trying to achieve something 
and a half the time they're not speaking to you at all. They're speaking to their players or somebody else in the organization. Like the words that they put out into the public sphere are crafted. They're not just answering a question in a press conference and saying what they think. Now, look, some coaches I'm sure do, and there's levels to this, right? Klopp is the best in the world or one of the best in the world for a reason. The fact that he's thinking about these things are part of that reason. There are coaches in the NFL that I'm sure operate at that level as well. And when they give answers to journalists, they're not simply answering the question. They are thinking about the words they're putting out there and thinking, well, A, what do I definitely not want to say? And B, what actually helps me? What, what is beneficial to my players or my quarterback that just had a crappy game or whatever it is? So they're answering with, a, with an agenda. Right. Now, look, I'm sure there are coaches in the NFL that simply don't operate at that level, as there are in all walks of life. And there are people that just blurt whatever thought, half-formed, jumps into their brain at any given moment, and you can probably identify who those people are. But there are definitely coaches that do operate on that kind of level, and you can't take what they say at face value all the time. You, uh, you didn't listen to the Rick Spielman interview, but I suggest everyone who didn't goes back and does that. I will go back and listen to it. He now mentioned— he mentioned how he was like the final eyes and ears to things that they put out, that the Vikings put out on social media, videos that they put on Vikings.com, kind of controlling the message, making sure that they didn't give away anything. I did pose the question to him about Kyler Murray and how Arizona, like did the Arizona social media director have to go into Steve Kimes office? And Rick's like, yeah, like that. You, you have those conversations all the time. Um, it is, it is fascinating. So we, we were getting into, as a general manager, we only judge you by draft picks and free agent signings, basically. The, the roster moves right. that you make, and that's probably 25% of the job because there's so much else. I, I think coaching is, is similar. Um, at the same time, I do think, just like people don't think QB wins matter, coaching wins probably matter. I mean, you're the, you're the final say. You're, you're influenced by your quarterback, probably more uh, with elite quarterbacks, but you can probably judge coaches by wins, right? Because well, that's all he can judge it's like, by. But like, it's like judging a CEO by the bottom line, by right. revenue or by, by margin or whatever it might be. You would, like, that's okay because it's like every previous decision had to flow through you, so there's something to yeah. judging you by the results. Even if wins and losses can be fickle, over time – Mike Tomlin in particular, the fact that he's always won games since 2007 or whatever it is, that means something. So that's the problem is the period of time over which you're judging the wins and losses. Because ultimately, all the stuff we just talked about, the calculating aspect of what you say, the things that you do behind the scenes that get players to buy into you to make them play better, to ultimately the whole point in all that is that leads to wins, Right. And you pair that with the in-game stuff, fourth down decisions and, you know, when to punt, when to go for it, all those kinds of things, Uh, two-point conversions, blah, blah, all that together, it's all about maximizing the number of wins, right? And you may, each one of those tiny little things may be stealing you a tiny percentage point, but you add it all up and you win more games than everybody else. So the whole point in, in all of that stuff is that it's part of the job that all leads to wins. You just can't measure most of it. It's easy to measure the fourth down decision stuff because it's, it's relatively black and white. It's a lot harder to measure the stuff that, you, A, you don't even see half of it, and B, when you do see it, like how do you, 
how do you judge the Jurgen Klopp thing, right? What, what percentage did that give? The, now, they lost that game, by the way, right? They lost 1-0 to Real Madrid, so it didn't work. But how do you, what percent did that give them a boost, right? Did that versus, oh, yeah, like we, we specifically, I told them all, whatever you do, don't give away that, you know, first dumbass goal. Oh, I can't remember what the thing was. But, like, how much did framing it in a positive way affect them versus framing it in a negative way it probably did make a difference psychologically like the man is not speaking from like i just plucked this out of the air that's like a psychologically recognized thing so it probably was it was the right thing to do it probably gave them a percentage boost but it wasn't enough to stop them losing so all of this stuff goes towards wins and losses i think the big problem with nfl coaching is that it typically the decisions get made on a one-year sample size right it's like Things were going okay, and then you went six and eleven. So now you're fired. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. I mean, but, McVeigh's got a pretty good track record with the Rams. Tomlin has a pretty good track record. But you see Steelers. how quickly the hot seat comes on, right? Like coaches yeah. that have good track records, it doesn't take long for people to start talking about those guys needing to be fired. Well, the other thing, the other part about McVeigh, right? So if you're analyzing this and say, well, he went from Jared Goff to Matthew Stafford, therefore he's better. On the other hand. It takes a coach to adjust the offense to Matthew Stafford's skill set, which is what happened. Matthew Stafford had the best season of his career, and we kind of predicted, right, he's going to have his best season, probably both from a grading standpoint, probably both from a result standpoint. Why? Because the environment's better. Who sets the environment? Well, the front office and the head coach, right? I mean, that's, you know, Les Snead and uh, Sean McVay put the environment around so that, so, so that Matthew Stafford could have a, a Super Bowl caliber season for the first time in his career. I mean— you don't need to look any further than Bill Belichick, right? The greatest coach of all time at the, the helm of, a, of the greatest dynasty in league history in a time where you're not supposed to be able to do that, right? Like they set up infrastructure, the salary cap, all this kind of stuff to prevent those things from happening. You're not supposed to be able to assemble the Dallas Cowboys of the 90s or the 49ers of the 80s. You can't do that anymore. And yet the Patriots went on this run of unparalleled success. Brady leaves, Belichick goes seven and nine, and we're talking about ooh, is Brady actually, or is, is Belichick even while Brady was Belichick the Super even Bowl any good? Yeah, yeah, okay, that, that definitely didn't help. But right. the guy went seven and nine, right? He's like one game under five hundred. And we're like, I mean, is Belichick even a good coach? Well, like now, my point being, yeah. if twenty twenty one, so they get they go ten wins last year with yeah. Mike Jones. If he'd gone six or five Oh, you'd be questioning. Is Belt not only Belichick could do anything? Not only would you be questioning it, but like he would be under legit pressure. Yeah. Like how much rope would he have? How much, you know, how much time would they give him before he was fired? And we're talking about the greatest NFL coach in history and a guy who it's impossible to have more credit in the bank yeah. than Bill Belichick had. And yet he would he probably only season. have two and a half seasons of like below average play. Before you're just like, I'm sorry, Bill, we got to go in a different direction. See ya. Like, you know, that's how, that's how like, knee-jerk the whole process is when you're judging it by wins and losses. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we had said, we've talked about this before, too, with, with Belichick. I mean, you can do his record with and without Brady, but at the same time, he, he helped make Tom Brady. He created the environment to create Tom Brady, which is part of coaching, which is, you know, something you do deserve credit for. Um, that just kind of shows the value of the true elite quarterback right the edge that that quarterback or Tom Brady is going to bring to the table all right you want to get into some of the uh 
what do we call it? Risers and fallers and biggest leaps and drops in the NFL. Uh huh. Do you want to start with that? This is your idea. My idea. Oh, okay. We're gonna do, we talk in teams. We talk in players. Yeah, whatever you want. You can't procrastinate it any longer, Sam. You got to you got to bring something to the table. Like the Dolphins, big leap. I'm not going with the Dolphins, but I, I was going to take the Dolphins. I'll well stay with the same team, Tua. You going to take a big leap? Tua's going to have a big leap. He has to, right? Why would he not have a big leap? We now have Tyreek Hill added to the mix. We have a better offense in terms of Mike McDaniel coming over and changing what's happening. We have an offensive line that's been somewhat overhauled. They're not 100% there, but the players that they've added, Tron Armstead, Connor Williams, are big upgrades. I think the bit that gets ignored a lot of the time is that that offensive line should get better just from the system that's coming in. Mike McDaniel's system, the Shanahan tree, that helps offensive line as much as it helps anything. So even if they'd done nothing on the offensive line, you would hope it would have, it would improve significantly just from that system coming in. Um, for the first time, I think you're going to have a fair evaluation of Tua, and that should make him play a lot better. I agree. I mean, last year at this time, we did predict better stats, but maybe similar play from Sam Darnold. At least I did. I was off on that um, because Sam Darnold wasn't good and the stats still weren't good. Yeah. But I would, I would make a similar prediction with Tua where I, don't, I do think he'll play better and the stats will be better, right? The execution will be better. Um, I think the fact that he's got some uh, – Tua has some Jimmy Garoppolo to his game in that for most plays you're looking at him and you're like, wow, quick release – pretty accurate getting the ball where it needs to go he's getting it out on time um, and then every now and again there's just these boneheaded decisions that Tua has to his game he's got some ugly ones in there just like a Jimmy Garoppolo so I think there'll be some similarities to what Garoppolo did in San Francisco with Mike McDaniel except perhaps a better supporting cast because Tyree Hill is anchoring the whole thing so the I would say the Dolphins taking a leap you're saying Tua mm-hmm. taking a leap the problem with all of this in the AFC is even if a team takes a leap forward it might not show up in the record. Well, that's why I'm not going with the Dolphins. Yeah, just saying Tua. Well, um, I'm going to say Derek Carr is mm. taking a leap forward. Um, I, I even saw it in the chat here today. People think we have uh, Raiders bias. And let me assure you, we're biased against all 32 teams. It's well, not just the Raiders. Why do we have Raiders? Because we don't, don't think Hunter Renfro is as good as Cooper Cup. That, and we don't think Derek Carr is Aaron Rodgers, probably like all that stuff. It all adds up when you think the players are exactly what they are. Um, so, obviously, we have some historic Raiders by – you made fun of Derek Carr one time four years ago. To me, I mean, he's gotten better since then. I've, I've said that. He has. I could see Derek Carr is going to um, – he's going to take a step forward. We talked about this before, too. If Derek Carr starts putting up MVP caliber numbers, do we talk about Derek Carr as MVP or Devontae Adams? Carr. I keep telling you that. But if, if Devontae Adams is literally the difference in Carr's stats from last year to this year, you have to look at these receivers. If Devontae Adams does, it, does this or if Tyreek Hill does this or if A.J. Brown goes in and their respective quarterbacks all of a sudden put up ridiculous numbers, yeah. we have to look at the reason why that's happened. Yeah, and you say the reason that the quarterback won MVP is the receiver. Like Tom Brady increases his career single-season touchdown uh, total by the exact number of touchdowns that Randy Moss. But he was always Tom Brady. He was always really good. And yeah, he was coming but, off. <laughs> he had the worst receiving core in the NFL. But he threw twenty three more touchdowns than he'd ever thrown before. The exact number that Randy Moss caught, and Randy Moss was never in the conversation for MVP because the quarterback is. So I'm going to say Derek Carr is going to take 
a big leap forward this year because he's got Hunter Renfro, who's a, you know, Cooper Cup-esque. Yeah. He's got Devontae. I imagine having Cooper Cup and Devontae Adams on the same, same team. That's what you have. You're not at all concerned by the fact that you could start it on the offensive line for them. No, I think maybe the new system will help a little bit. I don't think it's that disastrous. Look, here's the deal. It's pretty bad. We talked about how bad they were last year. Did it affect the offense? Kind of. Not really. I they mean, still put up huge numbers for the most part. It, yeah. it hurt a little bit in the second half of the season trying to figure out where, um, you know, Alex Leatherwood's moving around and still, you know, giving up. I think Leatherwood's going to be better in year two. I, it's, I don't think it's um, – I don't think it's going to completely hold back the Raiders. I don't feel great about the offensive line. It's probably bottom 10, but I think they'll be okay. Because you have Adams and you have Renfro. You have guys that can get open quickly. Yeah. They lose Brian Edwards, though. They lose fourth quarter Brian Edwards. Yeah, auto. It's going to hurt. Derek Carr's going to take a big leap forward. Okay. Um, Devontae Smith. Ooh. Devontae Smith. So, I... Eagles I wide receiver. Yeah. And now number two wide receiver, which is important. I love Devontae Smith coming out. Incredible route runner. So savvy. The dude won um, the Heisman Trophy for a reason. He's incredible. But he was 166 pounds when he was coming out. And you're like, does that, does that make a difference at the NFL level? Um, it shouldn't because he gets open and he does really well at the things that are important to succeed. But the track record of guys being really good at that size is not great. Um, year one, it's kind of it's still an unknown. He was really good. His route running translated immediately. His work in, you know, sideline catches, all that kind of stuff. But you did see plays where he struggled physically uh, at the catch point or just dealing with bigger body guys. And, like, now was that just year one transition and we're going to see him get better in year two and become that number one guy? Well, now he doesn't have to because A.J. Brown – came over in a trade. They gave him the contract. A.J. Brown is 220 pounds, 225, a physical monster. He's the guy that can win with physicality. Devontae Smith can just go back to being, or can just go to being, you know, the Z receiver who gets to play in space and doesn't have to deal with press coverage. He can just be himself and dominate with route running and sideline catch skills and all those kinds of things. If Jalen Hurts is up to the task, Devontae Smith should have a huge year because of that. Devontae Smith still played pretty well. Yeah. No, year. I'm not saying he was bad. I'm just saying you Above did see. Above average or to 75th percentile in receiving grade and, you know, against single coverage and all that stuff. I mean, he did very well. Yeah. I'm just saying you did see plays where the lack of physicality yeah. or the lack of size showed up. And it's not to say that that means he couldn't develop that part. But it was at least a, it was a bigger question after year one than it was going into year one for me. Devontae Smith caught only 39% of his contested catch opportunities. That was 22nd percentile in the NFL uh, using PFF IQ, of course. Is that, but is that what we should expect going forward from Devontae, right? Most, there are receivers who will catch 45, 50 plus percent of their contested catch opportunities. Is that what we should expect from Devontae Smith? By the way, he also had one of the highest average depth of targets last year. In part, you've got this what became a run-first offense and more of like a downfield passing attack, is that the best usage for Devontae Smith, or should he be working the underneath stuff a little bit more? I mean, I think he can do both. I, the, the key for him, I don't expect him to be a big contested catch guy ever, but the point being now they've engineered an environment where he shouldn't have to be. Um, it's kind of like, you know, Justin Herbert was amazing year one under pressure, 
but the Chargers approach was to make sure he's under less pressure in year two right doesn't matter what how good he was let's make sure that number is smaller next season the eagles have engineered a scenario where it doesn't matter whether he's going to get better or not at contested catches let's reduce the number of times Devontae smith has to try and make a contested catch because he's going to be wide open most of the time let's play towards that and that's what they've done that should ensure the best version of Devontae smith you're going to see I talk a lot about the uh, third-year offensive line breakout. So I think, you know, who are, who are the guys that could experience that? Uh, Andrew Thomas kind of already did last year with the Giants. Had a much better second year than he did first year. Yeah, but he, he just stays healthy. Yeah, if he, but if he does stay healthy, we can see Andrew Thomas take a big step forward. Um, Robert Hunt from the Miami Dolphins. Another guy who's, like, graded in the 60s over the last couple of years. Good player. Playmaker when you get him the ball in space, of course. But Hunt could take that step forward. Um, and then Kevin Dotson with the Pittsburgh Steelers. We've talked about the Steelers' offensive line. If Dotson has an opportunity to play, which could be trouble given the guys that they added. But Dotson's one of those guys that kind of graded well as a rookie, was just okay last year. But Dotson's one of those guys, if I'm a different NFL team, given what the Steelers – have invested I might call like this is I would call about a Kevin Dotson because he might not have a path to the field with some of the guards and centers that they brought in in free agency so I just wanted to highlight some of those those year three offensive linemen uh, Lucas Niang with the Kansas City Chiefs as well because they're just primed this is this is the time when those guys could take a step forward if, if Lucas Niang takes a step forward that offensive line is silly. That's what they need in Kansas City, right? They need. Can you imagine a, if he became like a Pro Bowl right tackle. They're so good. Yeah, offensive line. That offensive line would be ridiculous if and ridiculous and cheap if he became a Pro Bowl caliber right tackle. They need. They, they need to continue to have more cheap with Tooney and Trent Williams. Uh, sorry, Orlando Brown having all the money. Um, I saw Austin. By the way, since you left, Austin left. I know. Since you went uh, on your trip, Austin left us. It's sad. They were calling out a tweet that some Chiefs fan had that said, little known fact, Orlando Brown was as good as Trent Williams last year. Hmm. I don't know what the metric was. but then Starts? Uh, probably. <laughs> Maybe sacks or something like that. Um, for the millionth time, do not judge offensive linemen by sacks allowed. doesn't matter what our social media account tweets out there and all these fun stuff. Well, this guy's never allowed a sack. That is the worst way of judging a pass protector using a stat, sack total. I mean, maybe not the worst way. It's not the worst. Of course, there are worse way. ways. I mean, if you're looking at, like, guards per route run or something, maybe yeah. that'd be worse. <laughs> but sacks is, like, number 97 on the list. Andrew Thomas right up there in the yards per route run. Metric. That's right, Andrew Thomas. <laughs> touchdowns per, uh, per target, yeah. Andrew Thomas. Really high. Better than Kenny Galladay. Definitely. Who's going to drop off? Uh, hang on. One more. Uh, you a leap? Uh, yeah. Uh, Eric Stokes. Ooh, I like it. Didn't love Eric Stokes coming out. Um, but Eric Stokes was really quite good last year. And good in the kind of way that, you know, corner, there's sort of, there's almost two elements to it, right? It's like, how good are you generally at sticking to the guy in coverage? And then what happens at the catch point once the ball arrives? Eric Stokes was really good at the first part. Not great at the second part. But that's the part, I think, that tends to, um, it, the first part is more important to me. Like, if you can demonstrate the ability to consistently be in good coverage and track a receiver and not give up separation and just generally be around when the ball arrives, good things will happen. Because the second part, I think, is easier to, A, 
just catch the good end of variance. Like at some point, the ball that you know the ball location will be a little bit more in your favor, and you'll work out better. But I also think like if you're in phase all the time, it's easier to, to coach up the idea of hey, maybe give an eye, you know, maybe maybe get your head around, throw a hand up, you know. But there's also variance involved in that too. That was the Marlon Humphrey, sure, coming out. A lot of Bama cornerbacks played the ball differently than other but like, out of other schools. Marlon Humphrey was all was always in sticky coverage. So that is a skill, and then the results are often based off the quarterback, whether right. or not you got your head around, did you get your arm, did you play through the hands? That's what I'm saying. But sticky coverage is, is a skill set. But I also sure. think it's easier to kind of – the other thing is a skill set as well. Like Trayvon Diggs, you know, ball skills is a skill set as well. But I think it's easier to say to a guy like Marlon Humphrey or Eric Stokes, who's consistently in sticky coverage and in phase, I think it's easier to give him a couple of tips to make the – make him play the ball a little bit better when it arrives than it is to take a guy like Trayvon Diggs, who's got great ball skills, but is consistently getting wrecked in coverage and say, hey, how about, you know, you don't give up these giant double moves and 12 yards of separation every now and again. Like, I, it's, I don't think you can do that that well. So for a guy like Eric, for cornerbacks generally, I'm all about finding guys that are consistently in really good coverage and then projecting some kind of development from them in terms of how things happen and when the ball arrives. Eric Stokes was always in sticky coverage. That guy did not give up separation almost at all. And a lot of that showed up in terms of the overall coverage numbers. Like he allowed 51% of passes thrown his way to be caught. That's a pretty low number. Um, Didn't give up a ton of yardage when they arrived. Now got beaten for some big plays, but... That guy, I think, like he could have an A.J. Terrell kind of second season where we, we start looking at him and saying, this is an all-pro, Pro Bowl caliber player. First off, just missed. He's, he's a model guy, Stokes. But, just but missed the model? 79.8 percentile. So, I mean, it's like a, it's What's a your, rounding error from 80th percentile. The, that's your cutoff? Well, when model? I tested it. It's not my cutoff. There is, no, there is no cutoff. But when I tested the model... I said, what if I only draft 80th percentile or better? Okay. Just to, you know, just to test it. So he just misses it. But, I mean, as you know, that, could get, that can go either way. Now, Terrell. It's an he, art, not a science. Right. You've got to fudge these things a little Terrell's bit. Terrell's 85th percentile, which, you know, maybe, maybe I could have predicted, actually. So in hindsight, that year, um, I would not have drafted – the model would not have drafted Jeffrey Akuda or C.J. Henderson ahead of A.J. Terrell. A.J. Terrell would have been the best. And A.J. Terrell, by the way, is a great example of what we just talked about, right? The, you look at A.J. Terrell playing Jamar Chase um, when they played LSU. Now, look, he got beaten at the catch point a lot, <laughs> but he was there all yeah. the time, right? Every single play, pretty much, I think. I think every single target – he was at least contesting it. He was there in sticky coverage against Jamar Chase every single play. Now, look, Chase get, beat him. for. Now, you contrast that with Trayvon Diggs when he played Jamar Chase. Not true. Trayvon Diggs was not at the catch point multiple times against Jamar Chase. So I think that's a reasonable little, in a nutshell, the difference between players like that, right? You're yeah. talking players that are in consistently sticky coverage, and sometimes they don't make the play because you're going up against elite wide receivers versus guys that are not in sticky coverage all the time and also don't make the play. Going back to Stokes again, though, um, the, the Packers have Eric Stokes, who you just, you know, talking him up. They have Jair Alexander, and they have Rasul Douglas, who's coming off a career year, playing on the outside, making plays on the ball. I believe early 
OTA reports, for whatever they're worth, have Rasul <laughs> Douglas playing in the slot. Okay. What are the Packers going to do defensively? I mean, it's a nice problem to have, but they have three. I mean, they have one star corner in Jair Alexander, a potential star that you just mentioned in Eric Stokes, last year's first rounder, and then Rasul Douglas, who had that great season last year, comes back to, is this really going to be the best supporting cast, best defense that the Packers have had since the Super Bowl team back in 2010? Yeah, I mean, it could easily be the best defense Aaron Rodgers ever played with. The problem is he's throwing to nobody. Perfect. This is the choice. Yeah. They were forced into. Let's be good everywhere else. Did you watch the uh, you watch the golf, the Rodgers, Brady, the match? No, I haven't Three, watched any 2. of the 2.0, 3.0, whatever they're at. No, haven't been interested in those. They're, f- they're quite funny, largely because they're all mic'd up at all times. Yeah, right? yeah, they're and all they're like... talking to the commentary team, which, which includes Chuck, uh, Charles oh, Barkley. Yeah, yeah. So that on its own is worth watching it for. And there was at one point where Rodgers and Brady, so we're getting late in the thing. You know, there's a hole or two to go, and it's tight. And uh, there's a lot of trash talking happens, right? <laughs> and uh, I think Rodgers was talking to Brady, and he was like, you don't even need to say anything with Josh Allen. Like, he, he's been in his own head all day. We're fine there. It's, like, Mahomes is the guy. We've got to knock off his game here. Uh, I just thought that was pretty funny. They're, like, they're literally strategizing how to trash talk how to trash get talk. In the young guys' heads. I saw Brady tweet something out about Allen or something, like how he's never beaten him. Or... Yeah, there, there was a lot of trash talk like, in the lead-up to it. But yeah. even like during the round, they were, yeah, they were getting it. I mean, with Mahomes, anyway, the bring reason up the I, second half of the AFC Championship. The reason I brought that up is because Rodgers was the guy with the clutch putt to win the game. Who did? Rodgers. Rodgers had the clutch putt? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Sunk the young guns. More clutch than you thought. Uh, what about some uh, some drops? Dallas Cowboys. Oh. Yeah. They – so everybody – this offseason, an arms race in the NFL. A ton of teams are just dumping resources into trying to dominate next year. And you're – this is I, – I don't know that the um, – it, it seems like a strange season where – it's either contenders or bad teams and nothing in the middle. Like, we've lost the middle class of the NFL, and we've got a ton of really good teams and then a bunch of bad teams that have nothing left. Um, the Dallas Cowboys spent the offseason essentially trying to tread water and just not get worse. And, okay, that's fine. Sometimes you got to do that. But even if they man- even if they achieve that and this is as good a team as last year's team, everybody else got better. Everybody else in your like category of potential contenders improved. So you lost ground. Therefore, drop. The uh, optimism show, we, we put everybody in the Super Bowl, including the Cowboys, okay. Trevor and I. Super Bowl bound, they were. But when we went, when we were discussing the Cowboys from an optimistic standpoint, where it's like, well, yeah, they're replacing some pretty key starters here, and you've got the ascending Philadelphia Eagles. Are we going to overrate what the Eagles did on draft night? And are we going to go into the year thinking maybe the Eagles are the team to beat in the NFC East? We'll see. We still have our prediction show back, you know, in August or whenever we do it. But um, it is tough to get excited about what the Cowboys did this offseason compared to other teams because there's definitely more losses than additions. And I would put in the same category the Tennessee Titans. So I, so I'm on the road, right? In the E-type, not an awful lot of like cell phone reception or internet in a lot of these places in the middle of the country. 
Um, Did you like being off the grid for a while? Well, because I wasn't really off the grid because I was tweeting updates and posting updates about this thing to try and generate more money and that kind of stuff. The problem is you're sort of semi off the grid, right? Because sometimes you're enforced off the grid. Like you're driving through 800 miles of nothing. Yeah. And there just isn't cell phone reception. But anyway, my point being, every now and again, the social media team would tweet something out from like an article that I already written that was on oh, the right. site. And we're like, hell, here's PFF sound top 10. Oh, you did the AFC teams or something. No, it was like top 10 power rankings, right? And by the time you've seen it, you're like three hours in and you're just, your timeline is just a train wreck of all these people hating your top 10. I, um, whatever power rankings I put out, I think I had the Tennessee Titans number nine. In the AFC, I think you had them ninth. Really? Yeah. Pretty sure. Think about it. The AFC. I mean, I don't think that was true, but I couldn't swear to it. Because I'm pretty sure I remember the tweet. I mean, think about it. Who are you going to put? I mean, you, look. You had all the AFC West teams. <laughs> it's entirely possible. You had anyway. the AFC West teams. You had, you know, the Bills, the Ravens, the, the Bengals, probably the Colts or something. Yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, I just, you had the Titans ninth in the AFC. Is that The true? number one seed from last year. All right, fair enough. <laughs> anyway, my point being... That, there was a ton of people who were whinging about that, obviously. But the Tennessee Titans were the number one seed last year, and they might not make – they probably – I don't think they'll make the playoffs this year because the field just got incredibly hard. I hear you. Don't forget about the next Mike Tomlin, Mike Vrabel. The next Mike Tomlin. Vrabel will continue to, to get the Titans playing well. He's going to be the difference maker there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I that's just think, what's going to make it tricky. And again, I'm not sure they got a ton worse. It's just that while you were treading water and swapping A.J. Brown for um, Robert Woods and, and Traylon Burks, everybody else was like, oh, let's just get Devontae Adams, right? Like that, that was what the rest of the AFC was doing, or let's just sign Von Miller. So, like everybody else was doing that, and you were just juggling pieces and hoping you ended up as a net even. I mean, the other part of – so you've got the, the Cowboys dropping off and then the Titans. I mean, the Titans thing, too, is they also had a point differential of just 65 points. That was worse than the Colts, who finished second in the division. Um, certainly worse than the Bengals, who obviously went to the Super Bowl. Way worse than, say, the Patriots, who only ended up 10-7. and seven. Patriots had a weird year where they crushed some bad teams, but they also just, you know, they were 10-7. and seven. They didn't have the most dominant record. The Titans finished 12-5. and five. On one hand, they had this really small point differential for a, for a number one seed. On the other hand, they had all these injuries and all this turnover, and they just found a way. And they beat some really good teams, right? They went through that stretch where they're beating the Rams and the Bills and all these good – and the Chiefs and everything. Um, but I would probably agree with you that the Titans will not be the number one seed. I'm going to go out on a limb. Titans won't be the number one seed this year. Will they be the number nine seed in the AOC? They'll be between one and nine. Well, between one and nine. Because they still get to play the AFC South. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, if you assume they're not winning the division, which is kind of necessary for them. You're going to assume nine. that? Well, I'm just saying oh, if you're going to assume – if nine. you're going to have them nine, no. you probably have to assume. Your power ranking, right? All you're doing is power ranking. Yeah. So there's a world where you could say, you know what, I think the Browns are a better team. The Ravens are a better team. Like the Titans could be the fourth best team in the AFC North but still right. win the AFC and South. And the West. And the they West. Be, so, yeah, that's true. That's fair. Or the East, too. Like Bills, Patriots, Dolphins. Yeah. As it ha- I'm just pulling up the power rankings now. I did have them behind the Colts. So, but Sure. Yeah, it wouldn't. Like, if you have them behind Indianapolis in that division, immediately 
you're talking about them being five, six, seven in terms of seeding, right? And then if they miss the playoffs entirely, now you're eight, nine. You're, I mean, it doesn't take that much, yeah. you know? I guess. Particularly when you're talking about an AFC West that just went crazy in the offseason. All four of those teams are looking to be playoff contenders. An AFC North division that has at least two, maybe three if the Browns have a quarterback. You know, maybe four if somehow Pittsburgh and Mike Tomlin pull miracles and they can sustain a winning record. Yeah, it wouldn't. I mean, you're good. people are going to – people hate it. I, I have experienced that from my timeline. But it isn't crazy. Because we forget the Titans all the time, and now you're trashing them. Yeah, a little bit. What about the Arizona Cardinals potentially dropping off? 11-6 and six last year, obviously make the playoffs. Um, the Niners started out slow last year, but yeah. they, they end up going to the NFC Championship. Of course, the Rams win the Super Bowl. But the Niners started out, what, like 2-4 and four or whatever it was. And then by we, after week seven, the Niners were just a better team than the Cardinals. The Rams were a better team than the Cardinals. Um, the Seahawks, I don't think you're going to be very good in the NFC West, but you're talking about a pretty tough NFC West. And the Cardinals had one of those off-seasons where it's like, eh, you know, DeAndre Hopkins has suspended the first six games. Did the Cardinals get that much better? I like a lot some of the stuff that they did. I think they just have some some holes defensively, which I thought they did a good job of disguising. I think they did a good job of disguising their holes defensively for the most part last year, and I think that might be tough to do two years in a row in Arizona. Yeah, the the problem I have with Arizona is that everything just feels I mean, the way the seasons end makes the entire feeling around the team bad. Even when if you just looked at things from a big uh, from a high level picture standpoint, you'd actually think this was like a model of how to build a franchise. So th- this thing hit rock bottom 2018. Um they went 3 and 13. They had a points differential of minus 200, right? This was a terrible football team. Uh, the next year with um, Cliff Kingsbury comes in, they win two more games. Uh, they go 5-10-1. Um, they have a points defer- differential of only minus 81. And, you know, it's a step in the right direction. The year after that, 2020, now we're a 500 team. We're 8-8. Eight and eight. We have a positive points differential, 43. Kyler Murray's taken that step. They've got uh, DeAndre Hopkins. Everything's looking great. Uh, 2021, last year, 11-6. and six. We make the playoffs. Okay, we get whooped once we get there. 83, plus 83 points differential. I think we double almost the points differential from the year before. Like, this is consistently step, 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 all in the right direction. But the last couple of years, it's ended terribly. And, it, you know, they tail off the back end of the season. Things look bad. And you, know, you get whooped in the playoffs. It's like it's almost it almost ends in crisis mode. So, but if you just look at the big picture, we've gone three wins, five wins, eight wins, eleven wins. We've gone from minus two hundred up to plus eighty three. Yeah, overall it's been good. But it, because of the feeling around the whole thing, it's like it, it feels like something that's teetering on the edge of just collapse. And you know we're almost waiting for a year where. The whole thing on spools and it just goes south, particularly again in this, you know, NFL landscape where there's a bunch of good teams all over the place. I I don't quite know what to make about Arizona, whether we should expect like another step forward. Are they going to be a contender for the entire season? And, you know, 11 wins turns into like a 13 win franchise and maybe it still ends badly, but this is a dominant football team. Or is it like 
there's something to this collapse that happens every year, and we're kind of just on the brink of this team unraveling entirely and just being bad again. I could see it going both ways for Arizona, to be honest. I mean, I could see Kyler taking another step forward in year four because he's progressively gotten better. The offense has progressively gotten better. But again, it's just these weird second-half type of collapses meshed with some injury stuff too, but that's all baked in there. So we'll see. I have, it's June. We have time to change my mind before August, but we'll call a drop-off here for the Cardinals. Okay. Wrap it up. What else do you have? Anyone else? Uh, Players, I'm, teams, theories. Players, let me think. There's, what else is going to drop off? Well, there's always we have to we have to predict quarterback drop off because that happens every year. Last uh, year we probably predicted Herbert and we're horribly wrong. Well, we definitely highlighted the idea that there could be regression for Justin Herbert. There was questions about whether the improvement in his supporting cast and environment would offset the regression. And you would end up kind of with the same kind of Justin Herbert. Yeah. Now, as it happened, the regression didn't happen at all, and the environment got better. So you got even an even better Justin Herbert. Um, but yeah, that was the, I. I think C.J. Beathard's going to drop off because <laughs> when you click into premium, that's two from his league all leading part, PFF grade. All part of your PFF elite package. C.J. Beathard's the highest graded quarterback on like five dropbacks or whatever it was. Yeah, you get twenty five percent off using the promo code NFL Pod. So go buy one. Use promo code NFLPOD, get 25% off. Click on passing, and you check out the grades. And when you don't add a filter, I do suggest you add a filter, you have two for two for 33-yard C.J. Beathard, including a big-time throw in there, 95 PFF grade. I'm going to predict he drops off. He's not going to be a 95-graded quarterback next year. I think that's probably true. You should uh, predict the Tom Brady decline this year. Oh, it's yeah. finally time. Definitely. Well, now he needs some fodder. Now that he's retiring, you know, now that this is one last go-around, it's just not now. We think. Now it's just not going to happen. Not confirmed. <clears throat> um, yeah, I've learned my lesson with predicting Tom Brady declines. So it, it's, it'll be interesting to see if Joe Burrow can maintain that Ooh. level of play. I mean, he was the highest-graded quarterback last year by point one over Brady when you include the playoffs. Yeah. Um, incredible season by Burrow. Again, like just like Justin Herbert, kind of took his game to a whole different level, played out of his mind, you know, looked absolutely incredible. Jamar Chase coming in had a big uh, impact on that, an improvement to the team overall. They've done a great job, again, with the Justin Herbert thing, kind of building around him, improving the environment from a team that went to the Super Bowl. But, you know, can Burrow be that guy again, or does he drop off and go back to just being, you know, mortal? Because he was in, he was incredible last year. Basically, the point I'm making is that it's very hard to consistently sustain 90 plus PFF grades over a season every year. Yep. And even players like Aaron Rodgers don't do that. Back to back MVP Aaron Rodgers had a stretch of seasons in his career where instead of grading in the 90s, he graded in the 80s or even the 70s, and we were like, oh, "Is Rodgers is he done? Is this like have we seen the, the end of the great Aaron Rodgers?" So if Burrow was able to back up, you know, a 90-plus grade with another 90-plus grade, it would be a hell of an achievement. You heard it here. Sam does not believe in the Bengals, our hometown team, thinks Joe Burrow's trash, and he's going to regress <laughs> greatly next year. Oh, Trayvon Diggs. 11 interceptions, not happening this year. We're going to get six or five. He's going to grade better, though. And all of a sudden, yeah, probably. I think Trayvon Diggs, I, I mean, I think he's a good corner. I but all of a sudden. A Trayvon Diggs is going to grade better with half the interceptions at best. I'm just saying, when a guy goes from 11 interceptions to, like, five 
and still goes up a thousand yards we're gonna have a very different conversation he's going to give up half the yards and have half the interceptions and have a better grade <laughs> that's my Trayvon I, I, yes I would happily bet money on the idea that we will see his interception total reduced by at least half and his grade will improve if you could pair those two things and get me like the the DraftKings odds on that I would put money on that it's one of those things like when you're grading players at a production level the value of the interception is strong but also just difficult to maintain like he made some great plays not on every interception but he made some great plays on a bunch of interceptions uh, on the other hand it's like didn't mike lennon just throw some up to him and stuff? you know i mean yeah. it's, it's dependent on who you know tips and who's throwing it and all that stuff so it's my trayvon Diggs prediction yeah i mean i'm just saying his season if he has a normal season next year it is going to be a fascinating conversation regarding Trayvon Diggs because we had 11 interceptions this year, nine pass breakups as well. That's a significant number. Um, but gave up over 1,000 yards. That's huge for a corner. Gave up 18.5 yards per catch, also huge. Gave up five touchdowns, had 11 penalties. These are all very big numbers. Um, so if this, if those things sort of equalize – and the interceptions thing, which we know is a radically volatile number for corners, uh, if that goes to a normal level, and let's say he drops it, like Razul Douglas at five picks, and we're talking about a career year. He had a great year. Right, yeah. amazing season. From So if, if Diggs goes back to the five picks and has a Razul Douglas, Xavier Howard kind of season in terms of ball production, but still goes up 1,000 yards, you know, five touchdowns, it is a dramatically different argument to be making because now all of a sudden you can't make the argument at all that the you know the turnover the value of the turnovers offsets all that production because it doesn't at five Xavier Howard's a good proxy and we're talking about a guy that for the most part though does turn the ball over right he does he had seven interceptions yeah back in 2018 one in 2019 when he was injured 2020 had the 10 but last year, Xavier Howard played more snaps, had way more coverage snaps, and his interceptions went from 10 to 5. And, but nowhere along the way did Xavier Howard give up 1,000 yards in coverage. No. You know, 600, 700, but he wasn't giving up 1,000 yards in coverage. But yeah. he's a baller, playmaker. Let us know. What do you th- who do you think is going to drop off? Who's going to take a big step forward? Players? We'll do a breakout players show, too. We did that last year. I think it did pretty well. We'll get into some... Breakout players at some point. Do you want to hit the mailbag thing on uh, Thursday? Sure. All right, cool. All right, so thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks to Sam for returning. Didn't know if you were going to or not. I mean, it was dependent on whether the car would survive. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just glad you made it back here to Cincinnati. We appreciate having Sam back. We appreciate everybody that's tuned in, listening, or watching. And uh, it's the off season, so we're doing two a week. One on Monday, one on Thursday. So we'll be back here again on Thursday. Shout out, of course, to uh, to Cash App, to Underdog Fantasy. Be sure to go take advantage of those great offers. And, of course, NFL Pod over at PFF.com is your promo for 25% off any PFF subscription. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you again on Thursday.